0: Marty Mandak is going to be preaching today. And one of our values as a church is multiplication. And in order to multiply, you need to invest in and raise up new leaders. And I've been very encouraged over the last two years by the opportunity to uh, see Marty grow and give him opportunities in ministry. Um, One of those opportunities that we've given him a few times now is the chance to get up and preach the word of God to us. And so I'm encouraged to, to have Marty preaching today. Marty's also coming on staff here in a couple of weeks he is uh, transitioning out of the job that he's been in the last couple of years and coming on as our coordinator of student ministries so we're very excited to, to be bringing him on staff yeah let's see. I think he's going to add a ton of value to the to the ministry here uh, as a full-time staff member so let's welcome Marty as he comes and gets ready to preach the word to us Thank you pastor Fred I appreciate any opportunity that I have to stand in the pulpit to preach to open the Word of God and convey a message that he's laid on my heart or that a, a series that we're going through um, there's something special about this particular passage though I don't know for those of you who are friends of mine on Facebook if not you know sorry uh, but I uh, I was saved when I was 14 years old uh, at a youth conference. I was going to Harvest Baptist Church, which is just down the road on 28, I guess up the road, depending on how you're looking at it. And um, they used to do these things. They might still. I'm not sure if they do. They used to call these teen takeover services, which sounds horrible in and of itself, like, oh my gosh, the teens are taking over. But what they would do is they would give teenagers the opportunity to do everything they see Sunday morning. So everything from choir at that point to announcements to preaching to music specials literally everything was done by the teenagers and I remember pastor Skelly who is no longer there he used to say you know the the church capital C you know the world looks at the church and says you know the youth we got to protect the youth we got to raise them up because they are the church of tomorrow and he used to hate that saying because he would say no the youth is the church of today And I wholeheartedly believe that. And so I'm excited not only to come on staff and to be able to lead the youth, but not only that, God has given me an opportunity to revisit a passage actually when I was 15 years old. So I was about a year into my salvation walk. God gave me an opportunity to preach at one of those teen takeover services. And I preached this passage. And I did all right. I said last night on my on my status that I had eight points to my sermon. Don't worry, I don't have eight points this morning. Um, and they all started with the letter C. So I was trying to be like, you know, cool and like alliterate everything, and I probably missed the point. But either way, I'm excited to get another opportunity, another crack at this passage. So if you have your Bibles or if you want to follow along on the screen, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 14 this morning. And we're going to be looking at verses 22 33. I'm going to read, we'll pray, and then we'll dive into the word. The Bible says this, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray and well into the night he was there alone, he being Jesus. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from the land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came toward them walking on the sea very early in the morning. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. And immediately Jesus spoke to them, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him and said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshiped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. Do you pray with me this morning? God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you for this morning. We thank you even for the cold weather outside, Lord, for getting everybody here this morning to sit under your word, to worship you. God, I thank you for Redemption Church and the work that you're doing in and throughout the community through this body of believers, and I pray that you would continue to grow and and add to your kingdom, Lord, even this morning as I stand here. completely fallible, and, and I know I'm going to fumble over my words, but at the same time, I know your Holy Spirit will speak through me, and I pray that it would penetrate to the hearts of those sitting under your word this morning. Change lives this morning because of it. Help us to refocus our faith. Lord, we love you. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the account of Jesus walking on the water immediately follows a pretty familiar story, one that we actually looked at in the Gospel of John, the feeding of the 5,000, or I mean, it says feeding of the 5,000, that's counting men alone, so it's probably somewhere, maybe double that, even more than that, if you want to think about it. So it's the only miracle, by the way, to be recorded in all four of the Gospels. So it's obviously, it's a big deal. This was something that was um, important. This was something that stood out to the four writers of the Gospels. And John In uh, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, it gives us a clear indication as to why Jesus then, immediately following this account, sends his disciples away. Because I think that's important before we dive into the the core of this message. John 6, verses 14 and 15 says this. When the people saw the sign he had done, the multiplying of the bread and fish, the feeding of the 5,000, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world... Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force and make him their king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So, you see, the people were attempting to make Jesus their king. The one who would overthrow the oppressor, the Roman government, their savior had arrived essentially, the Messiah, right? But they were looking for a Messiah that was a little bit different than what. God obviously had in store a a, a Messiah that would come and lay down his life. They were looking for someone to overthrow the oppressor, to, to stand in the place as their new king in the here and now. So not only that, but we also know right before this major gospel event that Jesus had learned about the beheading of his cousin, John the Baptist. Earlier in this chapter, we actually read that Jesus withdrew himself to a remote place to be alone when he received the news of his cousin's death. Sometimes I forget, I don't know about you, but sometimes I forget that Jesus was fully human on earth. So how weary he must have been all the time, and especially now. So, of course, some time in solidarity and prayer with his father is probably exactly what he needed. Again, we're kind of learning in the Gospel of John that the first half of the Gospel is uh, Jesus performing miracles and signs. And then we get to the point where his hour had come. And obviously, Jesus knew that hour was to come. And, I mean, we learn about the the agonizing grief and pain and I don't want to say hesitancy, but at the same time, in his full human self, maybe the the struggle, the wrestle of what Jesus came here to do, which was to die in our place, right? So we learned a good bit about the importance of prayer and how we ought to pray last week. If you missed that, check out that message. It was really good. So Jesus was spending some time alone in prayer in the mountainside, and he sends his disciples along. He gets out of there, and yet... So going back to right after uh, the beheading of John the Baptist, he's, he's trying to get into some time of solidarity, probably to grieve the loss of his cousin, someone that he loved. And yet we see earlier in this chapter that he had compassion on the crowds that were following him. And so he decided to heal their sick, which undoubtedly made for a very long day. And it even says that the people became hungry, so he fed them, miraculously, of course. So this is where we are. This is kind of the setting of what came before this, and there's an urgency to get the disciples in a boat and send them on their way, as well as remove himself, Jesus, from this hot political dilemma. I'm not here to be your king yet, so to speak. But before we dive in, I want to mention one more thing that I believe is important as we dissect this passage this morning. We can read the exact same account in Mark chapter six, 6 and in John chapter 6, and yet for some reason, Matthew is the only one of the gospel accounts to include the story of Peter attempting to walk on the water. So, is there something about Peter and Christ's interaction that Maybe Matthew wants us to see. Maybe there's something greater that's of significance here. Not only that, but this story is eerily similar of that narrative from six chapters prior, Matthew chapter 8 verses 23 to 27. I'm not going to read that. I'll just kind of recap. Basically, they're in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. A storm brews up, threatening to sink the disciples' boat while Jesus is sleeping. And I don't know, it's not like a cruise liner that they're on where he's like, you know, below deck sleeping in a nice little uh, dormitory room. No, Jesus is, I mean, this is probably like a wooden fisherman boat that you would think of to take out on the Allegheny River. And he's just chilling, sleeping in the boat with the waves crashing all over him, right? And in that story, Jesus rebukes the winds and the sea and the winds and the sea obey him. And this led to an astonished reaction from the disciples. They asked the question, what manner of men is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? So in both stories, we see first off, the disciples are in a boat. Jesus appears absent in both of these accounts. He's sleeping in Matthew chapter eight and in verse, or in chapter 14, he's not even there, right? He's in the mountain by himself. He sends the disciples alone. The disciples are caught in a storm and they're afraid in Matthew eight, they're afraid of the storm. In Matthew 14, they're afraid of this ghost, this apparition that they see. In both accounts, Jesus has used the phrase, uses the phrase you of little faith as a rebuke in Matthew 8, it's a rebuke to all of the disciples, and here in this account, it's to Peter himself. We can also see the disciples' response to Jesus' power displayed. In Matthew chapter 8, they're in awe, and their response is almost one of fear, in a sense, of what kind of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? And in Matthew chapter 14, this passage this morning, they worship him and say, truly you are the Son of God. So in both accounts, we can kind of see parallels and patterns of doubt, but also worship, which mirrors the reaction of another account where they encounter Jesus fully resurrected on the mountain at the end of this gospel. Matthew chapter 28, verse 17. And fun fact I learned, it's in the two accounts of the disciples in the boat, as well as at the end of this gospel, that the word that translates doubt occurs only in these passages in the gospel of Matthew. So it's clear that Matthew, the author of this gospel, is emphasizing an importance in this story as an example of the importance of faith or the lack thereof doubt for his audience. And true faith leads to worship, lack of faith can lead to doubt. So knowing all of that, we can, what can we take from this passage? Well, this morning I would like to point out a few things just in the next couple of minutes to help us maybe dissect a somewhat familiar story. I'm sure most of us in this room have probably at least heard the account of Jesus and or Peter walking on the water. But what I want to point out to you first this morning, I want to look at verses 22 to 26 again. And point number one, if you're filling out the handout, is this ungodly fear will undoubtedly destroy our faith. So let's look again. Well, verses 22 to and 23 again. Jesus sends his disciples away. He retreats to a mountainside by himself to pray. Let's pick up in verse 24. It says this. So meanwhile, while Jesus is apart praying in the mountain, the boat was already some distance from the land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Jesus came toward them walking on the sea very early in the morning, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Let me ask you a couple questions this morning. What scares you in this life? It's a rhetorical question you obviously don't have to answer. (laughs) I mean, what are you afraid of? What drives your fear levels through the roof? See, if I'm answering these questions, I would say something like what I'm afraid of more often than not is what I think will happen. So fear of the unknown, right? Well, in this story, the disciples were afraid of what they actually saw. What they, what they knew in this moment was, I see someone walking across the water, not only that, during a storm. like. We fear many things in this life, right? If we're going back to us for a second, we fear many things in this life. We fear what we don't know, but then we fear what we end up do knowing. There's really no in between. We fear humanity. You know, we fear for our lives sometimes. We also fear for humanity. We kind of just went through a little bit of that last year. I'm not going to revisit 2020. That, that year doesn't exist anymore. And we fear what has carried over from Uh, yesterday we fear what today brings we fear what tomorrow may bring we fear a lot of things we fear the storms of life we fear when things are calm funny enough almost as if we're anticipating the next thing that'll go wrong here's a fact for you fear eats away at our faith it steals our joy and it sucks the life out of us and it's paralyzing and it's out of that fear that we end up sinning. We sin because we don't actually trust God will come through, so we act out of our own thought process, our own ambition, or what we feel is right in the moment. We operate out of this tendency of what? The fight, flee, or freeze mentality. That's a sad reality. This is what ungodly fear will even do to a believer. So however, isn't there such a thing as good fear? We read about good fear. We know first and foremost that perfect love casts out fear, that fear that is paralyzing. But not only that, we can read in Scripture that the fear of the Lord, godly fear, so we're kind of contrasting godly fear and ungodly fear, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So having a fear, a reverence of God is one thing, but being constantly afraid to the point where it's paralyzing is what's considered ungodly as a matter of fact and I don't know the validity of the exact number of times this was actually told to be by my wife and she heard it from some podcast um but it has been said that the phrase fear not being said to God's people can be found roughly 365 times in the Bible so one for every day of the year again I don't know if that's true but I'm sure a quick Google search might answer that I didn't feel necessary. I just thought it sounded cool the way it was. So, uh, but I, I, I can think of multiple accounts where the term fear not or don't be afraid is used. And if you were to look into scripture yourself, you'll notice that it's all throughout from Genesis to Revelation, this idea of fear not, don't be afraid. But in this passage in particular, can we really blame the disciples for being afraid? Again, what's What made them afraid in the first place? It wasn't the storm, because there's no mention of that. They were afraid that their boat was going to capsize. No, if anything, it says, look again at verse 26. It says, when the disciples saw him, Jesus, they didn't know it was Jesus at the time, walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. I think it's hard to blame them for crying out in fear in this given situation. However... You know, I can remember a time when, so uh, my wife and I, we have two kids. Owen is our oldest, uh, and then we have Andrew. And I remember when Owen had recently moved into his big boy room. So he moved out of the nursery and into his new room where, you know, he was in his big boy bed and all of that. And we were making room for Andrew to come come into this world. Uh, God help us. I love that boy. But man, uh, there definitely were nights, though, that Owen would cry out to us almost as if he was afraid of something and we would go into his room and you know it was a new space so sometimes it was just general fear but other times he would say I see something scary and he would point to a random spot in the room first off if there really was something scary like we're putting the house up on the market or I'm burning it down like I'm not going to investigate it if anything I'm sending Allie. you just go right ahead if there's really something in there like I'm not playing that I'm dipping but All joking aside, like when we would go in there and he would say that and he would point to something, you know, I don't know what he was pointing at. I don't know what he saw. But this is what we would often say. We would say something like, you know, we understand you're afraid. But buddy, if you just call out for Jesus to protect you, know that he's here with you. And when he's here, you're safe. It's so simple to say to a two and a half year old, but you see, when you call upon Jesus, The things that once seemed scary, those things that drove that fear in you, begin to subside. They may not necessarily go away, but when Jesus shows up, well, better yet, when we realize that he's been there the whole time, we finally realize, when we get our focus right, I mean, what an encouragement that is in those moments. So faith, fear can destroy it, but what then is faith's foundation? Because fear can only destroy that which is not set upon a solid foundation, foundation to begin with. So we see first and foremost that ungodly fear will undoubtedly destroy our faith. But point number two this morning is that the foundation of a Christian's genuine faith is the word of God. Let's look at verses 27 through 29 again. So again, they just saw something or someone walking on the water, and they cried out in fear. And it says, immediately, Jesus spoke to them. Have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. Let me ask you another question, and I'm mainly speaking to myself here because I really wrestle with this with this passage. What would make any sane person do what Peter did in this story? I mean, if you really think about it, Peter's nuts. What in the world would make him call out to this ghostly figure and say, if it's you, Jesus, like, let me come out there and walk with you? I'm not volunteering for that. If anything, I'm sending Peter along. Like, yeah, you go ahead and do that. Let me know how it works. And if you fall in, too bad. So Peter gets it, maybe, it's not a ghost. Apparently, it's, it's Jesus. He's challenging this, right? It's so easy to look at this story and say, wow, look at Peter go. Look at his faith. And oftentimes, that's how I've heard this passage preached. And I don't necessarily think that's wrong and in its place. But if I'm being honest, it's easy for me to just read this account and time and time again be like, man, good for Peter. But what did ultimately happen? make peter get out of the boat in the first place what made him do that there's something about understanding who god is and having that understanding that when he speaks it provokes us to action when he speaks we're brought to life literally that's the moment of salvation for all of us if you've encountered that There's something about the word of God that is foundational to our faith coming alive and then being put into action. We have examples like this all throughout scripture. If you look at characters like Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Gideon, Mary, Paul, and then in this narrative, Peter. I even think about people outside of the word of God, people like a German monk who decided to take a stand against the traditional religious practices of the capital C church at the time, sparking the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, right? Well, in Martin Luther's defense to his accusers, these uh, can be found in his writings, The Diet of Worms, it's this, uh, there's a quote out of there where he says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. See, it's the word of God that provokes us to action. When God speaks, our faith grows, and when our faith grows, we then act, Anybody in here that was a part of the small groups, we just went through a book called The Thing Is by Tony Payne. If you haven't read that, I would say, especially as a new believer or someone who's new to the faith, definitely check that out. But even if you've been a Christian for a long time, I think it's a very good reminder. It was at least in my group that I was hosting. We had really good discussions just about how awesome God is and how he has pulled us out of the kingdom of darkness, placed us into the kingdom of light, and that he is constantly in the process of making us into his son. But On page 77 of that book, he kind of speaks into this, so I'm just going to read it straight on as if this was part of my sermon. Uh, Page 77 says this, another way of saying all of this is that the first and primary means by which God achieves his purpose in us is by speaking his truth into our misguided and delusional minds. The foundation of everything is the word of God. As we've already seen in Colossians, he talks a lot about Colossians in this chapter. It was through the powerful word of truth, the gospel, that the Colossians were transferred out of darkness and into the kingdom of the sun. Though, or through his speech, his message, his truth, his word, as we often call it, God reprograms and renews our minds. And how easy is it, though, to look at all the great men and women of the faith on the surface at least, and we say how great they were. But I'm here to remind us this morning and remind myself especially that there is no extraordinary men and women on this earth. Only those determined to put their faith in an extraordinary God who speaks to them, brings them to life, and then that word provokes them to action. There's definitely obedience on their part, but it should be a testimony of how extraordinary our God is, not how extraordinary these people are. If God says, be assured that it is done, and it's, can you believe that? And trust me, in our passage, God himself showed up and spoke. I mean, did you see it? Verse 27 says, again, or immediately, Jesus spoke to them. Jesus is God, is he not? Have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. God's word, Jesus, the word made flesh, commands his disciples to not only have courage, but to not be afraid. And the words, it is I, that he utters, are literally translated, I am. The divine name of God found in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. So we see here that Jesus not only did what only God could do, but then used God's name to identify himself in that moment. That's incredible. Jesus literally said, have courage, I am, don't be afraid. The exact same title that God used to, uh, to Moses whenever Moses was like, I'm going to go to Pharaoh and tell him I'm, I'm here on behalf of this God. Like, what am I spo- How am I supposed to identify you? And God says, tell him, I am that I am, sent you. Jesus, the word who was in the beginning with God and who is God, is the foundation of our faith. If we build our faith on anything else, what are we doing? As the old Edward Mote hymn goes, and I'm sure most of you have heard this before, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, then he, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So yes, ungodly fear can undoubtedly destroy your faith, but the foundation of a Christian's genuine faith should be the word of God. Which leads me to my final point this morning. Point number three is the continual focus of our faith must be Jesus and only Jesus. So the disciples were in the boat, There's a storm that's brewing, tossing, literally tossing their boat to and fro. Jesus shows up on the scene, walking on the water. Peter calls out to him, and Jesus responds He says, come. So verse 30 says this. So Peter, uh, and climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came towards Jesus. Verse 30, but when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, "You of little faith, why did you doubt?" And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And then those in the boat worshipped him and said, "Truly, you are the Son of God." I think it's unfair, even unwise. I would go as far as to say uh, to ever speculate anything about a passage of scripture. You know, and I'm not going to knock on anything here, but this is just the first example that came to mind. The chosen series, right? wonderful series. I've only seen like two episodes and people are like, how did you watch two episodes and then not go back to it? It is very good, but it's also a speculative dramatization of scripture. We understand that they're kind of adding to and trying to make it a little bit, I mean, they're trying to add to the story to give it a little bit more of a connection to to the here and now but I I understand that I'm not saying there's anything wrong but when reading the word of God it's it's kind of a dangerous practice to just assume things about what went through a person's mind if it's not written on the page we can make some assumptions based upon contextual things but other than that I kind of just let the text do the work but often in this particular passage I've heard of one or two scenarios as possible we do know that Peter's focus shifted and I've heard one of two scenarios. The first one is very unlikely, it's very speculative, but it's this idea that, you know, I guess it's possible Peter's focus maybe went to himself initially. Like, I don't know about you, but if I step out onto a boat, if I walk out onto a pool, if I'm on the lake, if I go down to the Allegheny River and I just, I just start walking on water, very quickly my focus is gonna go to myself and how awesome I am. Like, what in the world am I? Like, you know, I'm gonna start doing like the Ric Flair walk. I mean, this is incredible. What? Look at what I'm able to do. The second, though, scenario, I guess, I, mean, I guess that's possible for Peter to have gotten a little full of himself, but the second scenario is that Peter's focus went to his surrounding circumstances. It's in verse 30 that we get the only indication of what went awry. It says, but when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. Anytime your focus shifts to your surrounding circumstances hear me out whether they're bad or even if they're good when you see them as bigger or more important or your main focus in life if they're bigger than god when you lose your focus you will always begin to sink it may not be right away you may not notice it but i'm telling you it's coming when we shift our focus off of God and onto our surrounding circumstances, you will always begin to sink. Remember, Peter was walking on water here. Probably one of the coolest things. I mean, okay, the, where thousands of people came to Christ uh, right after they received the Holy Spirit and everything in Acts. Probably top three things that ever happened in Peter's life that was incredible If he would have lived a long life and got married and had kids and grandkids and all that, I could just picture him sitting around the fire talking about the miraculous things he experienced. This had to be one of them. I mean, my goodness, he walked on water. Like, that's probably the coolest thing that could ever happen to anybody in life. And yet he still began to sink even in that moment because he shifted his focus to the wrong thing. You see, genuine faith is always focused on Christ and who he is. Remember back in Matthew chapter 8, they said, what kind of man is this? Their focus was on him. They were asking a legitimate question that the, the winds and the waves would obey this man. Who is this guy? Well, let me share with you who he is. Two verses. You can read a bunch of other verses in the Bible, but I want to point out these two. Amos 4 verse 13 says this, he is here. The one who forms the mountains, creates the winds, and reveals his thoughts to man. The one who makes the dawn out of darkness and strides on the heights of the earth. I love that description. He's just striding on the heights of the earth like it's no big deal. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. Job 9 verses 4 through 8 says this, God is wise and all-powerful. Who has opposed him and come out unharmed? He removes mountains without their knowledge, overturning them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place so that the pillars tremble. He commands the sun not to shine and seals off the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. So Jesus in this account is displaying his godliness. Not only that, he identifies himself as I am. Like how cool is that? And oftentimes we, or I'll, I'll say I, try to give Peter a pass, okay? I'm going to give him a pass here because of the amazing thing they did. Remember, look at the amazing amount of faith that Peter had to step out of the boat in the first place. I didn't see John or anybody else stepping up to the plate. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved the most or however he describes himself, I don't see them stepping out of the boat. Peter did. Look at his faith. And if the story were to stop there, I mean, okay. Give him some benefit of the doubt. And yet, we focus so much on Peter in this narrative, at least I do, that we miss it. We see here in verses 30 and 31 that Peter was caught in the act of faithlessness. Shifting his focus off of Christ. When he saw the strength of the wind, he he was afraid. If even for a moment. So when Peter was faithless, Jesus was faithful. Peter lost his focus on Jesus, but never once do we read in this account that Jesus lost his focus on Peter. Not once. It says immediately. That means that Jesus was paying attention. As soon as Peter began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me, immediately Jesus grabbed hold of him. He reached out his hand and he caught him. And I love this. If you think I'm being too harsh on Peter saying he was faithless in this, just before they're even back in the boat, this is what's incredible to me. Before they're even back in the boat, Jesus rebukes Peter. So they're still standing on water at this point. And in verse 31, he literally, re- he rebukes him. He says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, we must be careful here and don't misuse the words of Jesus. He's not saying you of little faith in yourself. Like, Peter, you had it. Or why did you doubt your own abilities, Peter? That's not what Jesus is saying here. This is a matter-of-fact statement. You of little faith in who I am, I just revealed myself to you as the great I am, and yet you took your focus off of me. Can I just praise God for a moment that it's not the amount of faith that we can muster up on our own? I mean, praise God for that. Read Paul's letter to the Ephesians if you ever want to know more about the gift of faith. I think that's a pretty good place to start. But ultimately, it's not about how much faith we can muster up. It's, it's about who we place that faith in. We're told that faith as small of a, as a mustard seed can move mountains. I think faith as small as a mustard seed in Jesus, and then he allows that, that seed to grow in you, and he... I'm telling you right now, church, we have to remember that it's not even our faith, though, that saves us in and of itself. It's Jesus who saves us. I think the word faith gets tossed around a little too easily, a little too nonchalant. If you just have faith, if you just have a little bit more faith, just have faith that it will happen. Just have faith that everything will be okay. It's not about how much faith we have or don't have. It's about who that faith is in. It's not our faith that cleanses us from all unrighteousness it's Jesus who cleanses us from all unrighteousness unfortunately like Peter our faith fluctuates all throughout our life for different reasons and I understand that but the one whom that faith is in does not change He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So keep your focus on him, not around your circumstances that are gonna change and affect how much faith you have. Just keep your focus on Jesus and say, even though I have no faith in my family, I have no faith in my friends, I have no faith in my circumstances, I have no faith in the church, I've been hearing that a lot lately. Listen, that's not where your faith should subside. Your faith should, should subside in Jesus and Jesus alone. So when life throws you through a loop, and believe me when I tell you that no one is exempt from troubles in this world, Jesus says to be courageous because I, Jesus, have conquered the world, John 16, If you walk away hearing nothing else this morning, hear this, the climax of this narrative in Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33, in Matthew's gospel, it is not that Jesus walked on water it's not that peter walked on water if even for a moment i refuse to let that be the only thing you take from this passage because it used to be the only thing i would take from this passage no the climax of this story is that jesus the great i am saves so put your faith in him That's incredible. That is what this passage is trying to illustrate to us. His perfect love casts out fear. His word must be the foundation of your walk. And no matter what, always keep your focus on Him and Him alone. So, when I was, well, all throughout my life, I've always been pretty athletic. Um, I've played a lot of different sports. And praise God, He just dwindled me down and was refining me to find the one true sport in this world, which is football. And I mean soccer, not American football. So praise the Lord for that. Can I just get an amen? Uh, All right, praise the Lord. Um, (laughs) And so in high school, I played soccer. And I also played basketball uh, for a good bit of my life. And and when I was a freshman, I played basketball in the wintertime. And I just, I don't know, I wasn't really feeling it anymore. And all of my soccer buddies swam in the wintertime. So I decided my sophomore year, I'm going to swim. I'm going to do competitive swimming. Never did it before in my life. But again, being pretty much naturally athletic. I kind of got the hang of most of the strokes, and you know, I was okay. Um, (laughs) The one stroke that I hated the worst, if anybody in here ever did competitive swimming or knows anything about it, the butterfly stroke is literally the worst possible thing that was ever invented by man, okay? That was one that I was picked to do because apparently I was half decent at it, that and the backstroke. So it's my first competitive meet. It's my first competitive time ever swimming an event by myself, and not only that, my dad was the timekeeper, so typically parents would come, and there was official judges, but then parents would keep time uh, and feed those numbers. They would usually have multiple timers so that they would get an accurate reading of when you ended ended the race. So (laughs) I get up on the block, and if any of you have ever done individual sports like tennis or I don't know if golf is exciting ever, but you know, golf, you step up to the tee. I don't know if you get like butterflies in your stomach when you do that, maybe. Um, I'm sure when there's thousands of people watching like Tiger Woods or something. But then swimming, you know, I get up on the block and my gut is just wrenching. I'm like, God, this is the first time I've ever done this, okay? So I have my swim cap on, I put my goggles on, I get up on the block and the buzzer goes off and I jump. And typically what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to tuck your head between your arms well I lifted my head for some stupid reason and when I hit the water the nose piece of my goggles snapped and my goggles came off I have two choices in this moment give up or just swim as straight as I can open my eyes and just try to figure out how to survive at this moment so I keep going and I remember I made it, I, I did okay for the first lap. So it's four laps for a 100 butterfly. It's down, back, down, back, okay? On well, my first time down, I was struggling, but I knew as soon as I turned around and I lifted my head above the water for the first time, I got water in my eyes. I'm probably breathing in water into my lungs. I probably should have just gave up, but whatever. I lifted my head. And the only thing I could sort of make out, because again, my vision was very blurry from the water. I saw my dad. And my dad's keeping time and I told myself the entire race just keep keep focusing on dad don't worry about everything else just do your best and keep focusing on your dad and I'm telling you right now that was the only thing that got me through that race I would love to tell you that I came in first and I blew everybody out no I came in last by a good bit and I struggled and I stumbled across the finish line if you wanna put it that way, but I'm telling you the only thing that got me through that was keeping my focus on my father. So allow that, as corny as an analogy it is, to be an example of what it is I'm trying to get you to understand here, that it's not about our circumstances ever. You understand that? And That's coming from a person that right now in life is actually doing okay. So I may be speaking to someone here this morning. It's like, Marty, you don't know what's going on in my life. So how dare you say that? You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I'm about to be going through because of this, that, or the other thing. But I'm telling you right now, it's not about our circumstances ever, whether good or bad. God wants our focus, God commands our focus and God deserves our focus. And more than we will ever know, in this lifetime at least, we need to keep our focus on God. When we focus our faith on Christ alone and his word as our solid foundation, what or whom shall we fear? Where's your focus this morning? Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for an opportunity to bring your word. I pray that in my feeble attempt to try to communicate and to communicate as best as I could... God, that somehow you uh, allowed a message to to resonate in the hearts of the people that sat under me. God, I pray that above all, you were honored and glorified by it. And I pray that if there's someone here this morning that's struggling, struggling to the point where it seems like their circumstances are just overtaking them, feels like they're swallowing water, (laughs) feels like they, they can't breathe. God, I pray that they would just get their focus back on you. Allow this time of worship at the end of our service to reshift that focus back to you. Not only that, Lord, but to keep it there. And I pray that you would empower them by your Holy Spirit to be able to do so. And Lord, I also wanna pray for people here that may be going, things are going well. And God, how easy it is to get distracted by even the things of this life when things are going well. We still take our focus off of you as if this life has anything to do with anything but you. God, you are incredible, you are holy, you are just, and you deserve all glory, honor, and praise. You deserve our focus. You deserve everything that we have to offer you because it's you, the author of life, who brought us to life in the first place by speaking your word into our deluded and dead minds, Lord, and you brought us to life. So help us to to worship you this morning. Help us to just to refocus. God, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.